This is episode 4A of Free as in Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. Freedom from contributor license agreements. <laughs> um, so, so people complain we don't mention the topic early enough. I've said it in the first second since the music. I mean, it's actually second like 30, 48 or 52 right now. I have no idea. Well, I listen to the show and do the show notes every week, so I know. I really hate listening to myself speak. 34 seconds in is how long the music usually takes. That's what Dan edits in. So we okay. usually start at 34 seconds. I do listen to the neat music from time to time. Okay. I really it's like your the music. ringer on your phone. It's a ringer on my phone. Okay. It's catchy. I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know. It's what? I, I don't know. It's just... <laughs> I raised my eyebrows pointedly. <laughs> well, it's it's just intro music. It's not... It's not what? It's not... It's It's... I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm going to say something unfriendly to Mike, and I don't mean to. It's really good. Uh, it's it's reasonable intro music. Reasonable intro Reasonably, music. Reasonably, yeah, yeah. You better be careful. He's going to withdraw his... Uh, he can't withdraw the license. He can't withdraw the license. The, these licenses are irreparable. He'll withdraw his friendship. <laughs> I, 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 it's, I, I don't have any problems with it. <laughs> I don't even like music, so the, the that's don't. not true. There was a time when you were very into music, long and long ago. But it, you're still, whenever ago. something comes up that you know well, you get excited to talk about it. Just because I know stuff, just, right? To, uh, just uh, uh, side facts, not actually just side facts about musicians' history, musical history, or something. Anyway. Anyway, so, so we are going to talk about contributor license. You're not going to play that part for Mike, are you? I'm going to tell him about it. Oh, don't How tell How can him. I not tell him about I guess it? I just tell him. Yeah. I, no, I just it's, I said it's reasonable music. I now will tell him you said that. Oh, that's, that <laughs> sounds worse than I mean it. <laughs> I, I, don't I know think what the to Daily say. Show theme, which was his inspiration, which he said, is reasonable intro music as well. And that's probably that might be giants. So, and I used to like they might be giants. So the fact that I think that's reasonable and that I think Mike stuff's reasonable means I think he's as good as they might be giants. There you go. Haha. Do you actually think that he's as good as the NFP Giants? Sure. Okay. Whatever. I'll tell him. Do you think he's better than the NFP Giants? I don't know. I don't know enough about. I only know. This is I've gone only heard two very musical silly. pieces. Yeah. So, so for those, I actually, we should explain because newer listeners will not know because they predate the recording, the addition of the theme song. The theme music was composed by Mike Tarantino, which is why in the ending th- credit thing that Karen does, she thanks him, but that's also her husband. Which is on Wikipedia, so it's not. Yes, when he recorded it, we weren't married. True. Yeah, um, and there are some fine, um, fine performances on it, including by uh, Charlie Paxson, who is a professional drummer. It's on the website. Yeah, but people so, might know. Oh, that's true. People just might be on the RSS feed and not. Okay, so um, we've established that I have not pissed off our musical talent too much. We haven't established anything. <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out later <laughs> if I have upset our musical talent. But we're, we're going to talk about contributor license agreements. And it's nice that I mentioned his license was irrevocable because that's one of the reasons we don't need a CLA. It's true. It's, it relates. You don't need a CLA. So what is a CLA? We should answer that question first because probably some of our listeners don't know. And they've probably, if they're listening to this show, heard it bandied around as yeah. a term. Bandied? Bandied. 
Yeah, it's a D or a T in that. B, a D in that. Well, word. it's also Bandit. very confusing because there are a lot of different kinds of agreements that are floating around our space, right? Like, so there was like a there's there there for a while were a lot of assignment agreements. So this goes far back to and and frankly, I think it's imp- if you're going to tell the history of CLAs, you have to point out that the FSF, which is the first free software nonprofit in history, and the first producer of free software designed to be free software. Uh, BSD people will say, well, BSD came first, but BSD was produced as an academic thing that happened to be free software, whereas FSF was publishing software intended to be free software, like that was their goal. Uh, and so it, it got advice from lawyers, which has now been mostly superseded uh, in the 1980s, that, and, and lawyers being conservative types have this tendency to believe there has to be a single publisher of a work that somehow it's really important that so lawyers in the 1980s think that the the work be published by an entity that is the single copyright holder in the work and therefore the FSF designed a system of copyright assignment whereby contributors to GNU projects would assign copyright and within five to seven years, FSF had relaxed this requirement. By the mid nineteen ni- early nineteen nineties, even it had not, it only required assignment for projects that basically had been started by the FSF. Things like Bash and GCC and Emacs uh, and so forth that were originally FSF works from the start uh, and published by the FSF. New GNU programs that joined, they had the option to assign or not. And so forth. So, so even the FSF was relaxing this requirement. Now, meanwhile, as the free software world gets bigger, and I say free software there because the term open source didn't exist. I remind everybody that free software as a term is much older than open source um, and is not as corporate. Um, <laughs> um, but the corporate folks were starting to show up, and there was an interest in, interest in this issue. And the ostensible reasons for it on the surface seem reasonable in that the goal is to make sure the initial goal is to make sure that somebody has the right to contribute to your project and that they haven't taken the code from somewhere else and making some assurance or collecting some assurance in that is important but when lawyers get a hold of things they tend to say well why don't we add as much as we can why don't we protect our client as much as we can and also free software was kind of scarier from a legal perspective back then right like there weren't good established necessarily norms of contribution in ways that people felt they could rely on companies that were you know that we think of now as being strong free and open source software companies were still figuring out what their policies were so it was kind of a different time too and but lawyers actually, in that situation get particularly aggressive uh, you know the funny thing is is that i almost don't agree with that assessment in the sense that the primary promulgators of these contributor license agreements in the early 2000s were, in fact, the nonprofit entities that had been started. The Apache Software Foundation. Right, trying to provide assurance to corporate but, stakeholders. So they're trying to provide assurance to corporate stakeholder B that corporate stakeholder A is not going to mess with them. Yes. Okay, that, that makes sense to me. So, so what the CLA does is it becomes the single agreement that everyone has agreed to. Uh, as far as those who have contributed code to the project. So ostensibly, this all makes sense, right? It's like, oh, well, everybody should agree to the same thing. Well, the funny part was, is that in parallel, predating this whole thing, we had designed a, 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 we had designed specific 
legal documents that were the thing that everybody had to agree to, which is namely the license of the project. Mm -hmm. So the, the, when you take a step aside from it, from that point of view, from the, oh, I need to, I need to know the document. What did everybody agree to who contributed to this? Well, they agreed to the license in the default case where you have a project that just has a free software license and accept contribution to that license. Um, and I suppose the, the FSF deserves some criticism for promulgating the necessity of, C, of CAAs, in that case, copyright assignment agreements, um, in the early days. But the funny thing always is that, is that I am I'm on the board of FSF these days advocating against them. FSF has, has slowly relaxed and is planning more announcements in the future uh, to relax uh, really? Yeah. And mm. the, the FSF's continually re-examining. Uh, I mean, I, I can't really say what the details are at this point, but generally speaking, I can say the FSF's continually reevaluating the need for copyright assignment in the face of people's concerns about it. Now, the interesting thing about this whole contributor license agreement argument, so we've, we've said two different terms here, CAA, copyright assignment agreement, and CLA, copyright li contributor licensing agreement. The funny part is, is that there's not much difference in the implications of either of them. The, the legal mechanisms are very different, but the implications are very similar. Well, it depends what it says. But in the usual case, the, the, the copyright assignment agreements that say the FSF asks you to sign, mm -hmm. I, actually they have, a, they have a different clause in them that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and the CLAs that say Apache wants you to sign uh, are, don't have that much difference to them in, the, in in this key sense, which is that the contributor gives incredibly broad rights to the contribution for the entity receiving the assignment or the CLA recipient. So what I mean by that is, is that a copyright assignment agreement literally says, I give you my copyright in this work. So you actually give it over to whoever the entity is, be it the FSF or any other nonprofit. The CLA says, I give you an incredibly broad license, much broader than the license of your project for the copyrights of my work. So ultimately, whether you have an extremely broad copyright licenses, license but aren't the copyright holder, or whether you have the copyright itself, the only difference between those two things is right to enforce. I mean, this came up, uh, this came up quite a lot when, um, when Canonical was requiring um, was moving from an assignment agreement to a licensing agreement, but their licensing agreement request was so broad that it was effectively the same. So basically the question is whether, a, a big part of this is whether or not you have the right to sub-license the work under under any any terms, including proprietary licenses. And and that's different, That that's that's really different depending on the agreement you're talking about. Agreed. But the reason, like let me, let me the finish FSF. the rat hole I was okay. on quickly. The rat hole I was on about this, this uh, is, is a copyright assignment agreement effectively different than a CLA. It often isn't. And so one of the reasons I bring that up as a first point in this discussion is there are people who just oppose copyright assignment straight out. Lots and lots of people in the free software world, many of whom do not oppose CLAs. And I would argue yeah. if you already oppose, if you've already done the analysis in your own mind and you oppose copyright assignment, then you have to make a pretty strong and complex argument to explain why you're pro-CLA but anti-copyright assignment. I think if you're against one, you pretty much have to be against the other in most cases, at least in the cases that are used in the real world. Because all the CLAs give such a broad uh, copyright agreement. So um, that's that point. Your point, I think, is correct as well, which is... Well, it's just, it's, it's drilling down a little bit in more detail on your point, which is that if the grant 
is that you can sublicense the um, the work under proprietary under under different terms, including proprietary licensing. Then it's really the same thing. Correct. Except for enforcement, but often that rides along yeah, too. Yeah, and and uh, indeed that's that's correct as well. So I I, I think I think the, the one of the issues that I have sort of the, one of the first principal issues that I have with CLAs is uh, and this is actually what got me to change my position on copyright assignment was if the free software license you're using is somehow inadequate to be used as the contributor as, as what all the contributors agree to um, then you should fix that license right if, if you're if you're saying well because most of the arguments for CLAs is well we need to get this done and we need to get that done and we need this patent grant or that patent grant well why aren't you using a free software license that has patent grants in it if you're so worried about patent grants. And how is your patent grant in the CLA different than the one in the free software license? And if it is, then maybe you should have the patent grant you have in your CLA in the free software license. Um, but even more fundamental than that, my opposition to CLAs are that I don't think any entity in the community should have more power than any other, generally speaking or at least the community shouldn't require as a right to be in this community that you must hand more power over to some individual entity, even if that entity is nonprofit. I've assigned copyright to FSF and I trust the FSF, but I have questioned, even being involved with FSF as a volunteer, the correctness of saying, well, you have to give the FSF more power Well, the FSF makes assurances when you assign your copyright to them that they're going to limit what they do with that power. Correct. And in, in in a couple of ways too. Yeah, and and that's and that's really important too because most CLAs do not. Uh, and there's a, a essay I'll link to in the show notes there where Richard Stallman talks about these assurances the FSF provides, and actually has a, has slightly watered down versions of those that are sort of the minimum of what you ought to ask for a company mm. uh, to do who's asking for you to sign a CLA or a, or, or a copyright assignment. Uh, and I, I, I encourage people to go read those in the show. And then on top of that, there's the layer of the fact that the FSF is bound by its nonprofit mission. Now, nonprofit organizations can be corrupt, and mm -hmm. you know there are problems. I, one of the things and, that and I don't like about the FSF is that it's it's run by a self-perpetuating board, mm -hmm. um, and I and without very much transparency. And so that troubles me a little bit. Uh, it's funny because I've done a complete 180 on that. I started out, you know, being skeptical of membership organizations like gnome and now i have done a you know completely opposite opinion and i i think that there's a lot of really good governance that comes out of it um, and so that but all these issues in terms of what you can what power the organization has as granted in the assignment agreement or in the cla hinges on that governance yeah and and you got to think about the recipient of the c of the cla uh in general right and, and 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 then that brings us into the issue of analyzing governance of orgs because then you have to look at well yeah. if if you trust the fsf because it has a charitable mission or you trust the gnome foundation because of the charitable mission not that the gnome foundation asks you to sign copyright um, or you trust conservancy nope. because it has a charitable mission in which case it, it, no conservancy project currently requires copyright assignment although we accept it for some mm -hmm. on a voluntary basis from the contributors, um, where the contributors choose to do it. Um, but the funny part is that a lot of the other nonprofits that are insisting on CLAs are not charities. They are trade associations, which means they're effectively controlled by the for-profit businesses involved. So you look at something like OpenStack Foundation, which is in the midst of this fight about whether they should keep their CLA or not, and, and maybe it'll be resolved by the time this airs, but probably not. Um, but that fight is 
between basically companies. I actually wasn't sure if you were going to say it's in the midst of a fight to prove that they're that their uh, common business interest is legitimate. Well, they are as well, because they're not even a valid trade association at the moment because the IRS denied them their C6 status. So at the point, at this point, they're a state-level nonprofit uh, um, corporate-controlled organization, right? And they don't, they don't have any IRS status whatsoever. They have no oversight by the IRS at the moment um, because the IRS says, well, we don't not, want to oversee you. Well, that's not true. Uh, well, they have, they have tax, tax they're, Yeah, they're tax tax like a for-profit for Yeah, so they have to pay tax taxes. So, so, they're, so they're, they have actually there's increased, by increased the, oversight. <laughs> well, yes, but only, only financial only oversight, financial not, oversight. not governance oversight, right? I mean, that's the nice right. thing about the tying the tax exemption to a governance question is that to keep the tax exemption, you have to meet certain requirements and then, right. and then you, you, you're, you're, incent- you're financially incentivized to meet those other requirements that aren't financial right. so that you get the financial benefit. Um, but, but in in most of these cases, like like the Eclipse Foundation, like uh, like the OpenStack Foundation, like the Linux Foundation, if they're asking for a CLA, it's basically a group of companies asking you to agree to something. Yeah. Um, and it's to the benefit of that company. In fact, those organizations are designed to benefit their corporate members, not the individual contributors of the project. And I know, for example, in the OpenStack community, many individual contributors who are furious at the CLA because they're for, they're the ones who have to implement it. I mean, that's the other part of the CLA. Okay. That, that I just want to just go back because I know you're making an important point, but in terms of not benefiting individual contributors, there are models of trade associations where individuals are the members to whom the common business interest runs. So um, I don't know. If, are, there, are, are any of those in free software? I mean, I don't know of any. I mean, I know that the Linux Foundation accepts individuals. The OpenStack Foundation has individual members with non-voting rights. But you could argue that they're hybrid. I think at the end of the day, the companies can change so much, you know, retain so much control that that's probably true. Yeah. But I just wanted to say, as like a point of fact, as a point of fact, it's the kind of thing where it could it could run to individual contributors. But the, but but the not, reason I don't bring that up is because this, this, look how complex uh, our conversation already is yeah. over this. And that's the problem with the CLAs is that when you look at a CLA, the policy decisions behind it, what it says, what it does, ha- have been heavily discussed and debated probably in a dark smoke-filled room, probably okay. not smoke-filled these days, by a bunch of lawyers and corporate people to get what they want, but no one consults the community. No one consulted the OpenStack community, the community of individual developers, the real community, the people who write the code for OpenStack. Not a one of them well, had any many input. Many people writing code for OpenStack are at those companies, are employees of the companies acting in their capacity as employees of those companies. Okay, I'm actually, I, so, we so, totally, fine. we're very much argument. in agreement You're actually. You're making a lawyer about, argument. You're making a lawyer's I'm, I'm argument gonna, about I'm, that. What I'm about to say here is that I'm going to go into, into uh, conservative lawyer mode. Because I, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be fun. Well, I am. That's what I'm saying. But so I want to. I want to go further into it, and uh, and and don't please don't interpret the questions I'm going to ask going forward as being part of my views. Okay. But the the problem is that that yes, individuals are often contributing code to say OpenStack in their corporate capacity because their employer told them to contribute to OpenStack. But the reason they took those jobs, the reason that they find them valuable. The reason they want to do this is because many of them are old school free software people. Some of them are new free software people, but all of them are there, not all of them, but but a overwhelming majority, all the ones I've met. And I've met, I've met at this point hundreds of OpenStack developers. They're there because they've heard about it as a free software project. In, in the sense that they heard, they heard the rhetoric of, it's a community you can contribute to and join and everybody has, uh, most individual developers have been sold that bill of goods. I know that the employees who 
are employed by the Open Sack Foundation were, were sold that bill of goods. I know that the employees at, say, HP who contributes were sold that bill of goods. Okay, I do know people who are OpenStack developers who who are in it because they're it's their job and they're um, and they know it's valuable for their company. But they don't. They don't. They, they would be just as happy working on some proprietary project for the company. No, they're happy. It's free and open source software, but their you know, but their views on it are. Much and so why didn't why couldn't why didn't they work on a proprietary application in their company? It was just how they were assigned. They just showed up to their first day at work and were assigned that in complete surprise. No, there are people who have come out of the you know the free software world and they feel lucky that they have a job where it's in freedom. Point but it, they don't necessarily feel ideologically about OpenStack. Correct, but they would they they want their code to be free. Yes. Right. And and they don't want barriers to entry in their community. They want to collaborate with other contributors who may or may not be at their company. And, and if they can benefit their company while doing it, they that's just extra bonus to them. But the main reason they're focusing on being in a part of their company, because almost all these companies, by the way, because OpenStack isn't copylefted, have proprietary forks of OpenStack. So the people you met probably have the option to go work on the proprietary fork that their company has. I'm sure all the Rackspace developers, there's probably hundreds of developers inside Rackspace who work on proprietary changes to OpenStack mm -hmm. that are never really least upstream right. and then there's a small group much smaller group probably that works on the upstream stuff so we the people we know are all working on that upstream stuff and they're there because they believe in being in a community and and, and being in an open source and free software community maybe they're more open source than free software okay but they, they they've been sold that bill of goods and the CLA process has been a burden to them um, I know the developers at the OpenStack Foundation who got assigned the work of trying to collect the agreements from both companies and individuals, and it's a it's a quagmire. It's a disaster. I have I have back channel information that, <laughs> that is clearly tells me that that the OpenStack Foundation's records are not in order. And the lawyers like Mark Radcliffe, who come up with this stuff, they have never done real work in their life, as far as I can tell. They've never sat down and tried to organize something correctly. So they say, oh yeah, we just collect it from everybody, and oh you have people to do that, right? And and the people that have to do that are developers. Ultimately, the, the developers have to make sure every time I get a patch, oh, if I'm doing patch review, I've got to check or write a program that checks to see if that person signed the CLA or not. And oh, did their company also sign the CLA? Because not only do the individuals in the OpenStack Foundation currently have to sign CLA, but their company has to as well. And but so Bradley, if we don't know that they have, if we don't know that their company and the individual has executed contributor agreements, how do we know that they're not just taking code from somewhere and pretending that they have the right to license it. That's the Brian Benelldorf argument. That's the argument, or the Larry Rosen argument. Larry Rosen, who's the lawyer to the Apache Software Foundation. So I said I was going to ask questions that make it sound like I have views <laughs> I don't have. Larry's, Larry's argument is that free software developer, Larry Rosen, free software developers are, are, are should never be trusted, that you shouldn't trust them because they're going, to, they're going to rip off code and put it in the project, and you've got to put all the liability onto the contributor. And that's what CLAs typically do. They typically take the liability that the project as a whole, sort of an, maybe an unincorporated entity, maybe if it's part of Conservancy, the Conservancy would take on all that, all that liability that you do. There's liability there that when people contribute, maybe a contribution shouldn't have been put into the code base. Maybe it was ripped off from somebody else. Maybe somebody sneakily took it out of a proprietary software program at their company and put it upstream and they weren't allowed to, or they just you know, ripped off code, whatever happened, right? Those things can happen any day of the week a free software project. Um, it has never actually happened, as far as I know, in any real way that mattered. Um, because what do you mean it's never happened? Show me an example. Show, show me one example. But is there not one example that you know of 
in how many years of your involvement in the free software community? Not a one. I don't know of any. Yeah. Sco was going to be it, right? Sco was. I that's since what year? What I year changed, did you start paying attention? 1992. 1992. So it was one before that. Is that what you're I'm saying? I'm not. I'm just saying that's a long time. Um, it's a long time. That's exactly my point. And, and we all thought Sco. I mean, one of the things that changed my position on copyright assignment was Sco. Back in the day when when Sco got started, and I've I've blogged about this publicly on my my anti uh, Project Harmony, which was a project to harmonize all the CLAs into one evil agreement, um, uh, it, to to really bring the harm on ye. Um, <laughs> that uh, th that my blog post about that talked about how I, I, I kind of smugly sat in the audience uh, as Sco got started, um, pointing out to Ted Cho that well you guys don't do this in Linux you don't have copyright assignment and therefore you guys are at risk when, with Sco FSF's not at risk and I sort of thought well we have all these copyright assignments agreements we collected um, FSF's in the clear and we know it and we can prove it in court and all that sort of thing of course the SCO's claims uh, were utterly baseless as it turned out there wasn't any code copied out of Linux in fact there wasn't any patent there was nothing the, their, their entire claim was made up as it turned out so the one big case which was funded in part by Microsoft which is why it went on so long um, there wasn't any claim underneath so, so if, if the people who got the funding from Microsoft, which has been shown, that, that there's documents that have been leaked that have shown Microsoft was funding that, um, that, that Microsoft decided to back as the thing to attack free software, didn't have any claims, where are these claims? Now, that, that said, I've heard of situations where people have tried to upstream stuff. I've heard of situations where people got worried and wrote code out, but it's never been to the point where it got in anything beyond, oh, I've got to spend a weekend, we've got to throw away that code and rewrite it because I don't know where that guy got it and it doesn't look so good. So, um, yeah. But I mean, if that's the remedy, if that's the thing we have to do, every five to six years in any project of sufficient size, somebody has to rewrite some code from scratch over a weekend? I mean, that's going to happen. That's going to happen anyway. And it's going to happen even if they sign the CLA because what are you going to do? See, this is the thing about the blame shifting that I don't really bothers me. You want to put all this blame onto contributors, make somebody sign a CLA and say, ah, OpenStack Foundation can sue you and your company both because they have an individual CLA and a corporate CLA. So they can sue both you and your company for breach of contract because you represented that it was your stuff and it wasn't and you didn't have a right to contribute it. And so, okay, there's a big lawsuit over it. Uh, but how much code does it have to be before it's easier just to write it, A, and B, why do you as an individual, why does your company want that blame on them? Why, and why, why do you want to sign an agreement that shifts that blame? Um, because maybe you, don't, maybe you don't know that it was taken, right? What if somebody gave you a patch that you thought was legitimate? You're incorporating patches from the mailing list and putting them up. You, you can't always vet everything. And this idea that, that's been promulgated mostly by, I, I think IBM has been the worst about it, but other companies as well, uh, that, that believe that you can vet every free software contribution. Things like that giant Eclipse two-page poster that you have to put on your wall to figure out if you can contribute to a project. I've talked about that on this podcast before. Those things come into existence because of this idea that we can perfectly know. We can't perfectly know. And the CLAs don't help us any. They just shift blame over to the developer, which I don't think is right anyway, because I don't think the blame should be on the developer. The blame should be on the project as a whole. And this is why Conservancy did this analysis, to, to put on Conservancy talk for a minute. 
we we looked at this question. We don't require our projects to have CLAs because, mm -hmm. frankly, as a nonprofit, we don't want our contributors to have to worry about it. And if there's blame to be had, we'll we'll take the blame and we'll deal with it. Either I mean, to be honest, when you've got a lawsuit situation, people will sue anyone they can possibly sue anyway, regardless. Yeah, and Conservancy would rather step in and defend our developers. We are an organization about our developers and users. And if our users and developers of any Conservancy project were being sued because of something that was in the code, we would insert ourselves as much as we possibly could, funding permitted, to fight mm -hmm. because we don't want our users or developers, both commercial and non-commercial, everybody, the individuals, the companies that so adopt you're saying throw out the DCO and CLAs? Um, maybe. I don't know if we actually need the DCO. The DCO I see as a compromise. It's, it's a way to collect some assent. Um, relatively easily. And since developers, the Linux project has proven that developers don't mind it that much. That it's they, very lightweight. It's lightweight. Relatively. I mean, and frankly, I, I think there, I, I mean, I've said this publicly before, so I might as well say it here. I think there are a lot of developers who are just taught that the incantation you do to get your process upstream is put dash S on get so a signed off by tag has been added. I think if we did a poll of developers of how many actually know exactly what the DCO says, I think the poll results will be low as far as like the average uh, sign, if we took all the signed off by people and asked them that question. Um, on the other hand, I don't care. I don't care the fact they have agreed, they have done a signed off by, it's a valid legal signature um, that they've agreed to. And they all they agreed to was that they did their best to, and to their knowledge, there wasn't anything in there. Mm -hmm. um, and no one's gonna sue all those signed off by people anyway. It wouldn't make sense to do so. They're gonna sue, as SCO did, IBM or somebody big, right. which explains why IBM's so obsessed with this, right? Uh, they got sued by SCO. But on the other hand, they have not done the analysis to say this, all this being in place wouldn't have prevented SCO because SCO had these baseless claims. If the DCO had been used from day zero, if Linus had set it up in 1991 when he released the first version, it wouldn't have stopped SCO anyway. It wouldn't have mattered. They would have sued anyway because they were making a baseless claim and they were being funded by an organization that wanted to attack free software. So I, I just don't think that where these corporate lawyers have gotten to is any good. And you look at people like Mark Radcliffe, his goal is to bill hours to the OpenStack Foundation. But without a CLA, how will you know even who's contributing? Well, th does that matter? Does it? I don't, I don't know if it how necessarily do you, does. It, can an anonymous contributor be... I think we should permit anonymous yeah, contributions yeah, to free too. software. I'm having a really hard time playing this role. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, there are times when you want to be a little more conservative. I mean, I had a recent situation that Karen's probably thinking of a conservancy where we we somebody we thought they wanted to be anonymous and they didn't, and so they weren't. Um, but it, we looked into it because we were a little concerned about about certain people in the community, certain companies attacking the side of letting the person be anonymous and find a way we could let them be anonymous. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there are probably projects where people have contributed under pseudonyms that we don't even know about. Um, there, there is a major contributor to a major conservancy project who uses a pseudonym regularly. Conservancy happens to know his real name, but only because we reimbursed him uh, for travel right. expenses, which we had to write the check in his real name. Until we had to do that, I didn't know that that wasn't that person's real name. Right. And so, and it's never caused us any trouble whatsoever, right? Yeah. And and I the mean, reason this the person does day. it, the funny part is the reason this person does it is that this person is published in another field and he's basically trying to bifurcate his publications. His free software stuff is totally separate from his day job, which is unrelated to software altogether. And so he wanted to, he didn't want the Google effect where his name was conflated with, oh, is he a free software developer or is he in this other field? He wanted that field as that and this field as that. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, fraud is fraud and it's hard to protect yourself against the situations of a really bad actor you can at the never, same time. You can never defeat a bad actor ever, ever, ever. You can't. Yeah. 
So, you know, lawyers are just trying to put infrastructure in place to sort of try to address, anticipate and address these situations. But, uh, but that doesn't mean that yeah. they're necessarily the right tool for the job. So, and the thing is, is that we wouldn't have this fight in the OpenStack world. We wouldn't have a fight over CLAs at all if developers stood up and just said no. And I've met only four or five developers who have literally gone to the level of saying, am I using, I'm, using, I'm using literally right, um, have literally gone to the effort of saying, I have prepared this patch to this program, but I will not sign the CLA. Mm-hmm. And if you want the patch, you'll have to take it without me signing the CLA. And the thing is, is we need more brave people to stand up and do that and say that I'm working on this code, but I won't sign the CLA. Um, and by the way, if your company orders you to sign an individual CLA to contribute to a project required to contribute behalf of a company, call HR, call the human resources people and say, why should I have to agree to a personal agreement? Like, I understand, okay, you have a corporate CLA with this organization I'm contributing to, but why do I have to put my own, if I'm acting on behalf of the company, which as Karen argued before, many of these developers are, why should I have to sign in my own name an individual CLA with a mm. third-party organization? That's a really good point that like, I Like, I would call of. my human resources people and say, why do I have to sign this agreement? That's like saying that, that I have to, I have to um, if we work with a travel agent, I have to sign the contract with the travel agent myself under my own name and be on the hook with the travel agent if the co company doesn't pay. Right? Would you ever do that? I mean, it turns out I did that for Conservancy, by the way. I'm on the hook for our credit card because we couldn't get a credit card. But I talked to the board and got an extra perk. And I negotiated an extra perk to get that because I, I See, felt so... my name is on the PayPal and I don't get anything. You should have asked for it. You agreed to it at the very first day. I but did. That's As another a volunteer, example. I wasn't which, even, and you chose to attach your own to, credit to yes, that. Yes, I did. Um, but, but that was a choice we gave you and a choice I was given with the credit card. Yeah, Basically, I wanted the convenience of having a conservancy credit card because so many projects needed us to pay for things by credit card. But the, the, the ironic and annoying thing is that these contributors are being asked in the OpenStack example to sign the individual CLA um, and put their own name on the hook for their job, basically, which is not fair. The only agreement you should have if you're working on behalf of your employer is your agreement with your employer. That's the only thing that should be in your own name. Yeah, ultimately. what's tough is that it's becoming, in many ways, it's just it's a, it's like a rote thing that you do. It's something that has become expected. And so people aren't questioning it in the same way. It's fat, funny because at, uh, for, uh, as a volunteer, I'm still co-organizing the outreach program for women. And as part of setting up that program, I put up... I, implemented a legal infrastructure for the program where mentors and participants sign contracts. And that's in part because we're, you know, we being GNOME in this instance is a, you're wincing, is that because I said we? Okay, uh, uh, the uh, GNOME is a nonprofit organization and, you know, it has very little control over, um, over the operations of the program. And so basically we made the most narrow possible agreement as you can. So mentors who, the foundation isn't paying or anything like that, uh, but the, the mentors basically say that if they are grossly negligent, or t you know, have intentional wrongdoing, um, that they are liable um, for the, you know, they will indemnify the foundation, which is like the least amount that I would conceivably ask for for volunteers. It basically is so that if you, you know, if if your mentor and your participant says um, says to you that somebody is giving them like death or rape threats and you don't do anything, um, or if you as a mentor um, decide to stalk your participant, it's really for this like really objectionable act. But there's been a, recently like a little bit of an uproar about this on the um, on the list only because we we're it's it's not something that people are used to signing and we didn't make it look like terms of use. 
if it were terms of use, people are so used to signing all of those indemnities, if they could have just clicked through it, then they probably would have agreed to it. But because we're basically making it as agreement, we're making sure that everybody wants, you know, and it's new. It's something that people are, are you know, a few people are, are up in arms about it. A lot of people have read it and think that it's perfectly reasonable. So I'm not, I'm not troubled by this, but it struck me in this instance because it's one of those things where it's sort of about people's expectations and people have become to, have come to expect CLAs. Well, and I think that that relates to the terms of use issue you're raising, that this just click agree culture. And and I think that we should think about what's this doing to our free software projects and how is it affecting them and who's, who's it consolidating power with, right? How much research did you do as an OpenStack developer into what the OpenStack Foundation is, who controls it, how it works? I know that various high level people you know, like, uh, that are involved with OpenStack have done this. Um, some OpenStack developers have contacted me. I've done a little bit of research uh, to tell them, and and to know that I mean, th and think about this. Just as and I've I've mentioned his name a few times. Think about this. Mark Radcliffe is the lawyer to the OpenStack Foundation. He's also the lawyer to various GPL violators, and does a part of his business is defending people against us who violate the GPL. He's lied publicly about issues of GPL enforcement. Uh, which Karen was fortunately present to uh, to uh, <laughs> to ca contradict uh, contradict his lies. He didn't he know telling. who I was. Yeah, that yeah. was the only reason he was willing to say it in the room. But but I mean this this lawyer who, as far as I can tell, he's a good lawyer, but in the very narrow way of being a good lawyer, which is he will zealously do whatever his client wants. And in the OpenStack case, his client is the OpenStack Foundation, which is controlled by a couple of for-profit companies. So his clients are basically the, uh, the, the consensus of those companies in aggregate. And that's the interest of his client. It's not developers. It's not the project. He doesn't care one whit if developers who contribute to OpenStack are happy. Um, if he thinks it would mitigate risk for his client, he'll make their life hell because he already has. I know that the developers who had to do the initial CLA collection, it was a disaster for them. And it's gotten better because they had to implement software, but they had to stop working on OpenStack and work on collecting contributor agreement software instead. It's tough because sometimes legal infrastructures are useful, right? Like I'm talking, like, you know, like what we've experienced with the outreach program for women, there are some circumstances where you really do need some of this in place, but it's easy to step too far. Yeah, and I, I think that if you're at the point where you're requiring everybody in your project to sign a piece of paper or to uh, to formally and legally agree to uh, to well I, I shouldn't say that they, they basically have to read a document that's more than a couple of sentences <laughs> and agree to it other than that's not the free software license um, I mean I think that's where this gets complicated and, right. and tough because I guess that's we right. encourage people the license but the thing is is that the generally speaking the licenses are well understood and I think that people don't even realize that in cases of project with CLAs, the license doesn't really govern most distributions or, the, or at least the most high profile distributions of the code. That's the disturbing thing. Because if you think about the fact that the primary place people get OpenStack from is OpenStack's website, and the fact that OpenStack as an organization is the recipient of the CLAs, notwithstanding that they're distributing under the Apache license, they're not bound by the Apache license right. at all because they're only bound by the CLAs. Mm -hmm. Because the CLAs are the things that govern their use. And same thing with Canonical Limited. When you think about uh, what's a project from Canonical anybody still uses, I'm having trouble. <laughs> I, I mean, so if you get, um, what's the, the, oh, the bizarre revision control system? If you get that from Canonical's website, I guess some people still use that, right? Canonical okay. may be distributing to you under GPLv3, but they're not bound by GPLv3. 
because they've got contributor agreements, which A, means they can make a proprietary version of BZR if they want to. I don't know why anybody would want that, but they could do it. Um, but also it means that they're not part, they're not part of your community. They're not willing to agree to the constitution of that community. It's, it's like, it's akin to, to things like, like FISA courts. It's akin to these things where these extra constitutional stuff, because I view things like GPL as a constitution of the community, but then some people are above the law and CLAs are designed to put some people above the law of the license. And the CLA proponents will give you all sorts of good reasons. And my answer is every time they have a good reason, I say, why is that not in your license, your free software license? If it's so good, if that legal term is so good for you, why is it not good for everybody? Which means if it's good for everybody, it should be in a license that everybody has to agree to, to copy, modify, and distribute the software. And yeah, they don't I, have I an answer for a that. Really good, they have a no really answer. good point to strengthen the licenses. Uh, yeah, but if, yeah. If, if there needs to be strengthening, right? I mean, the point is, is the things Which they that are, would argue against. It's bizarre. It, that only lawyers can love. equals outbound thing, right? It's basically it's trying to preserve as much control for their company clients as possible. But their clients so are not for, you. They're asking for the world. If you're listening to this podcast, you're not their client. Most likely. But not actually, you are not. But yeah. you may, in sometimes, act in the capacity as their client. I mean, even the people, I, I mean, I don't know if the employees I know at OpenStack Foundation listen to this podcast, but if they do, even they, there's no way Mark Radcliffe is your lawyer because none of your interests are representative. It's just the interest of your employer. I don't know any case, maybe I'm just too like pro-union or something. I don't know any case where an employer's interest really is the employee's interest. Like it's, your, your interests are never aligned with your employer, more or less. That's not necessarily true. Unless your employer is a 501c3 charity. Well, that, that certainly helps. I mean, there's a real benefit to working at a charity. But if you work for a C6 or a company, I mean, in the end, your, your company's primary goal is to make money or help other people make money. Um, and I guess your interest, if all you care about is money, I guess maybe your interest could be aligned. That's yeah, true. which many people do. But if you're working on open source and free software, you're not primarily motivated by money because you'd be writing proprietary software if you were. Some people, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's true. I, I, you can always make more money. With proprietary software, with proprietary is that software. true? I, I, I know how much some people at Apple get paid. Mm. And they get paid so much money that it's got to be true that proprietary software pays better. If you want to be paid a lot of money, instances, go work for Apple. There are certain companies that you can work at that you clearly will make less money to work on free and open source software. Well, Red Hat's the canonical right. example, um, um, to use canonical in the canonical <laughs> way. Um, but, but, I mean, even if you work for Google, I think that if you work for Google and you're working on mostly free software released code, um, then you're probably being paid less than the people who say, make sure the ads, proprietary ad stuff run. Yeah. I, I'm just making a guess. I don't know that for sure, but I'm, I, I guess. I think that there's true. more to say on this issue. And I think we will be saying a lot more over time. There's a few areas where there are conversations scheduled. And if there anything comes up that adds additional viewpoints, we'll try to make updates. Yeah. And we're, and we're trying to, I, I'm recruiting guests who are very cagey about getting on the show. I, I've been trying to get guests who have the other position. It's not that we're trying to be one-sided about it, but guests who are pro CLA, they don't want to be on here. Yeah, because uh, they don't want to talk about it uh, because they're afraid because uh, they're afraid they're, they're on the run. CLA people are on the run. CLAs are on the run. Fight CLAs. God, Just I, say I love no. your fiery language. Um, OK, just CLAs. I can't say anything. I can't CLAs. Anything. Just say no. <laughs>
Degrees in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Free as in Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faith.us. That's F-A-I-F.us. Oh, no, no, you don't. Oh, sorry. I thought you had like a, never mind. It's 4A. I, I thought you had a, um, had the backspace. You don't. You're fine. This is episode 4A of Free is in Freedom.